$20 million gold heist at Pearson Airport in April caught headlines because of the brazen nature of the crime, but it also struck some as eerily similar to an other robbery 70 years ago. The theft of gold bars from Toronto's airport had gone unsolved for seven decades until now. I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. National Post reporter Adrian Humphreys joins me to discuss how he was able to identify the culprits of the 1952 gold heist how they likely got away with it, and why there probably wasn't a happy ending to this underworld tale. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Amazon Music. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about the show. So Adrian, just a couple months ago, there was a massive gold heist at Pearson Airport. And I mean, people got wrapped up in that mystery on its own, but... What I found fascinating by reading your recent piece in the National Post was it, you know, it was reminiscent of a heist that's more than 70 years old that was never solved. And what can you tell me about the 1952 gold theft at Toronto's airport? In 1952, there was a remarkably similar heist um, of gold. What happens is in northern Ontario, they mine a lot of gold. And then it, it makes its way some to, to Ottawa, some to Montreal, some to, to Toronto for refining. And, uh, you know, sort of they, they do a stage, they do rough refining, and then they do various uh, other accompanying refining processes, depending on what the gold is used for. So it's flying around quite a bit, especially back in those days when gold had just been opened for export. It used to be have to go to Ottawa's Mint. So um, in 1952, there was gold flying out of Toronto that arrived by a Brinks truck. There was 10 cases of it, of gold bars, and it was checked into a cargo warehouse at what was then called Malton Airport, but it's the same property that's become the Toronto Pearson International Airport. It was stored there for a few hours, waiting for an 8 p.m. flight to Montreal. From Montreal, it was going to be uh, flown to, to Europe. The 10 crates of gold were checked out of the locker by the cargo warehouse handler, loaded onto the plane, and flown to Montreal. Yet when they unloaded the plane in Montreal, six of the ten crates of gold were missing. They didn't get on the plane. The airline at first thought that, uh, you know, it was a mistake, maybe it got put on the wrong plane, or, or, or. so they didn't, they didn't raise the alarm right away. It wasn't until the next day that they bashfully reported that, uh, that the, the gold had been stolen. Um, the police come, it's a, you know, RCMP, it's OPP, it's some local cops, and they're scratching their heads, and they're trying to figure this out. And you think it might be a fairly easy thing to solve, but the, the bottom line is, 70-odd years later, no one had solved the crime. No arrests had been made, no gold had been recovered, and it was just a, a cobweb cold case sitting in Toronto crime lure as someone obviously did an apparently flawless, non-violent robbery, high stakes, largest gold heist in Canada at the time, and completely got away with it. Is that what made you want to look into it? The fact that it's just been sitting there for so many years unsolved? Was it the similarities with the recent heist in Toronto? What made you want to start digging into this, this cold case? Well, it was fairly simple at the start. I was reporting heavily on this April gold heist. In that case, it was Again, the latest likely to be the largest gold heist in Canadian history. And, and, and I should clarify, we don't know much about that case right now. It, it's, it's sort of a black box of silence. So while I was waiting 
for more information on that case, I thought I would research some previous gold heists in Canada. And there has been a number of really interesting and exciting gold heists. Most of them have been solved one way or the other, except for this one. So this one was attractive for a couple of reasons. The main reason being that it was ended up being remarkably similar to April's gold heist. They both had gold delivered by a Brinks truck. It had, one was being flown out of uh, Toronto to Switzerland. The other one was flying into Toronto from Switzerland. And in both cases, it clearly had inside assistance. In both cases, it vanished and police apparently not only, uh, at least in 1952, didn't even have suspects, they didn't even know how it was taken. And that's sort of the status we have to assume right now from the recent gold heist. No one has seemed to have noticed anything wrong until they noticed the gold was gone. So that made this a uh, uh, prime pickings for me to look at. And uh, my, my investigation took me in a very, very specific direction once I started researching it. Yeah, and I'm, I'm curious, is this something that when you, you set out to do research and reporting into this cold case, did you intend to ultimately crack the case? And, and how quickly did you wind up going down kind of a specific direction in your investigation? Like what, what was it that made you focus on particular people? I didn't set about to solve it. I mean, that, that would be hubris for starters. And also, uh, I was just really, to be honest, you know, expecting to write four paragraphs of previous gold heists for a, a news story on the current one. But I was trying to do a, a little bit of original uh, research by reading the old clippings from the time, the, the freshest, earliest reports of, of what precisely happened. And I was reading 1952 um, newspaper clippings uh, from from the Toronto papers of the day that, that were reporting this, you know, baffling gold mystery. And as I'm reading this, there's a, there was a cargo handler, a young cargo handler, mentioned in passing as being the one that sort of took the gold from the warehouse and moved it to the plane near the tarmac. And he's, he's named in passing because he happened to make a comment to reporters who were waiting outside the airport. And the name was Howard Halpenny. Now, that name, as I write, you know, didn't mean much to most people. I, I wouldn't have, it, it doesn't appear to have meant anything to any of the reporters. Um, whether I don't even know if it meant anything to police at the time. I suspect maybe not. Because at the time he was 20 years old, he was a young cargo handler, and he had six hours of questioning uh, by police and seemed to pass the test, um, and, and no further mention in the press was made of him. But I knew that name. I've been doing organized crime reporting for decades. And while I, you know, I wasn't born in 1952, but, but later in life, that man, Howard Halpenny, or a man named Howard Halpenny, as I first wasn't 100% sure, became what I knew to be uh, a con man, fraud artist, uh, with very close ties to the mafia. Um, so, you know, sort of the highest order of crime in the province. And and for me, that just couldn't have been a coincidence. Mm -hmm. And and so you, you have this name, this familiar name, someone who runs in underworld circles. And so did you start digging into Howard Halpenny then and kind of what his life was like prior 
to your understanding of him as a, as a criminal figure in, in Ontario? Yeah, my first step was to run around looking for a date of birth um, to see if I'm talking about the same Howard Halpenny. Halpenny is an unusual name, but it's certainly not unique. And, um, and I, I don't even think the name Howard Halpenny is particularly unique in Canada. So I wanted to make sure I was talking about the same guy. Now, what was um, almost threw me off the scent was that my information that my Howard Halpenny was born in 1932. But all the newspaper reports said Howard Halpenny, which would have made him 20 years old at the time of the heist, but all the newspaper reports said that that 22-year-old cargo handler. So that was sort of a two years off. I later found out that um, he appeared to have lied about his age so he could get the job, which did involve driving and, and being bonded and insured. Um, so he apparently gave his uh, older sister's date of birth to get the job uh, at the airport, and he was, in fact, the 20-year-old man that I was after. So then I started really trying to circle around closer and closer to get to people who would have known Howard, uh, would have known the Howard, uh, Howard Halpenny's family, and may have been in a position to have some intimacy with what would obviously be a very closely guarded secret. And um, I ended up having um, pretty good success with that. Mm-hmm. And and what did you learn about Howard at the time of the heist? You know, what, what kind of circles did he run in at the time? And was he the kind of guy... Obviously, to be a cargo handler, you need to be able to, you know, handle yourself, move things around. But was he the kind of guy that would be suitable for a massive gold heist? He ended up being the perfect person to pull off this 1952 gold heist. Uh, For starters, you need a couple of things. You need to be strong. You need to be fairly smart. You need to have connections and you need to be able to control your tongue. That's really all that's required. He came off in spades for all of those criteria. So I spoke, to, I, I tracked down and found people that grew up with Howard as a young guy. He was a young, tough hoodlum uh, in midtown Toronto streets. He ran with a, actually a very tough group of kids that went on to have um, a really outsized impact on, on crime in, in, in Ontario and in fact the, the country later on. You know, so I heard about him being very scrappy, he had, uh, very strong, he, you know, he was uh, ahead of his time, both sort of mentally and physically. He was much more mature and, 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 and clever than, than the others. He could hold his own even with older boys. They would get into fistfights a lot, even though they were friends because they were so sort of hot-headed and stubborn. Um, he was built like a boxer. And as he grew, he was sort of, you know, a fairly good-looking, very athletic kind of guy. Uh, he was also um, had a father who was connected. So this is one of the things that really helped me trigger how a young guy, even if he's tough and strong and uh, and smart, how he could possibly pull off a fairly, you know, a gold heist that has some complications uh, to it. And it turns out that his father was a man named Gordon Halpenny, who was himself somewhat of a racketeer. 1940s and 1950s Toronto, he ran um, gambling games outside in the back of a in, in the back rooms of a funeral uh, funeral home in Midtown Toronto. He was involved in some stock frauds and swindling. And in fact, just months before the 1952 gold heist, Gordon Halpenny lost his license to sell stocks and securities by the Ontario Securities Commission. He was described as part of the unsavory fringe that was using extremely high-pressure methods to convince unsophisticated American investors um, to buy shares in and this was a, 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 a light bulb moment for me, in an Ontario mining stock. So this gave Gordon 
connections in the gold industry, because at the time how they moved gold was a secret, but people involved in gold mining would know how it, how it goes about. Um, he also had uh, both Howard and Gordon now, both had connections to larger interests in, 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 in crime. If they needed people to help them, maybe they didn't. Apparently, Gordon ended up getting Howard or helping Howard get his job at the airport, and he didn't have the job particularly long before the gold heist. And they would have had word that a gold shipment was coming in, um, or perhaps had arrived, and they set it in motion. We'll be right back. So you have these two individuals as father and son, both with connections, both with um, seeming temperaments to be involved in something like this. But at this point, that's kind of all you have. How did you get from identifying these individuals as potentially being involved in this to saying, yeah, these are the guys and this is the confirmation I need? Yeah, that was certainly a tricky part. I mean, being convinced for myself that I was on the right track doesn't really solve the crime. So at that point, I was getting closer and closer, and I was finding people that was very close to Howard uh, throughout sort of the 70s and 80s, sometime after. Um, and, and that's when word came to me that, in fact, he had been involved, that he had claimed to have been involved, that there was family lure and, and, and um, uh, gossip, or eh, I'd say more than gossip, but but a family history there of involvement in the gold heist. It, um, everything that I had accumulated independently was not only internally consistent within itself, but also now matched up uh, and aligned perfectly with the un- what was being said or known of Howard by the criminals around him and other people who were around him and close to him at the time. The final caveat here the final the final reveal for me was when I made contact directly with the um, older members of his family so when I talk about Howard being ahead of his ahead of his time uh, that also included um, starting a family uh, he was I think 17 when he ended up getting his girlfriend pregnant and um, they got married very quickly and started having children in very quick succession as a very very young man um, so his family was much closer in age. In fact, his oldest daughter is 73 now um, than you know, a, a lot of kids might have been. Putting them in a, in a position to be sort of more aware of what was going on in the home around them, um, perhaps earlier than a lot of people might expect. And uh, I made a contact with uh, one of his daughters, his eldest daughter, Heather Halpenny, who was very um, reluctant and suspicious uh, when I first approached her. And uh, she said she wanted to sort of check with some of the other members of the family to canvas what, if anything, they wanted to say. Um, of, of course, from my point of view, I'm thinking, well, the, the mere fact she just didn't say, what are you talking about? I have no idea what, what you're saying. Uh, I, again, certainly didn't disavow me that any of my research was going to waste. Um, the question is whether I could get uh, more, get some uh, additional details. And more importantly for me is, to find out what happened to the gold, because I was pretty confident I knew who took it and likely how, but I had no idea of how successful it was 
Um, you know, we've all watched Hollywood movies on these types of things when the the, the lovable rogue bandits uh, sort of make off and live like kings on a, on a score of a lifetime. And I wanted to know whether that was uh, what happened to Howard Halpenny. And uh, eventually, the um, the family uh, members of the family agreed to talk to me, and um, and I learned, of course, you know, uh, sadly, perhaps um, that Howard Halpenny and his father Gordon Halpenny uh, didn't live like kings off of the fruits of their labor. That in fact, it it ended up causing them uh, a lot of grief and and, and a lot of uh, pain for the family, which is partly to explain why the family was so reluctant to talk about it. Not only the aspect of did this. Was this a black mark on the family? Was it, uh, you know, um, I think the bigger issue for them was that it was actually a hard thing for them to talk about because it it brought them only grief. I mean, looking at the heist itself, you have this guy with mining connections um, and runs rackets out of the back of a funeral home. And you have this young son who runs in criminal circles how did they pull off the heist? Other, obviously, as you mentioned, that that he lied about his age so he could get the job. His his dad, I assume, helped him get the job. But how did they manage to get away with it? Well, the the the, the beauty of it was that um, the Malton Airport at the time was an incredibly insecure facility. It, it, it was out in the hinterlands. It it was pretty much open access. Um, cars could sort of come and go and pull up to the cargo warehouse. And with him, uh, 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 he appears to have been the only cargo handler on duty at night for the night flight. So he had time and space to do almost anything he wanted with the gold, as long as it was something that he could convincingly talk about when it was eventually noticed that it was missing. So there was... There was, there was no chance of the crime going unfound. Um, you don't start off with 10 crates of high-value gold bars and then a few hours later realize you only have four and, and have everyone just shrug their shoulders and go on. So they knew it was going to be found out. The question is they just had to process it and get rid of it uh, off of the airport property and, and in hiding um, really before and anyone ended up focusing on them. So... What I, I, you know, I don't know how many people were involved, whether it was just Howard that, I mean, he had the time and space. He could have moved one crate at a time because one man couldn't move more than one crate, um, uh, you know, to a waiting vehicle. Uh, was Gordon driving? Was Gordon, his father and he, were they taking a crate each to move six? Um, did, they, did they only take six to leave four so that some gold could still be delivered to delay its uh, discovery? Or did they run out of energy or are they running out of time? Some of these details I don't know. But uh, the ended up being 14 gold bars and six crates um, that, that were, were removed from that cargo um, cart of Howard's, uh, likely by Howard with his father, perhaps with help. And then while Gordon would have removed it off-site from the airport, uh, Howard went about his job. And earlier in this conversation, I talked about how, you know, one of the criteria that, uh, that, 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 that was needed was someone that could hold their tongue. And this was really also one of Howard's strengths. He was an incredible con man. He was, a, he, he was very articulate, very convincing, um, and he was a terrific, comfortable, very comfortable and terrific liar. 
Um, I talked to several people that said he was a great talker. You know, he, 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 one, one underworld friend of his said that he could do both ends of the business. He was good with his hands and he was good with his mouth. Um, now, in his case, he was talking about making fists, not carrying stuff. But it was, you know, it, <laughs> he, could do, he could do that. So he was tough, but he was great. And, and even his own daughter said, uh, if, my, if my dad's lips were moving, he was telling a lie. Um, she described an incident later in life where um, uh, traveling door-to-door salesmen would come to the home trying to sell something. And after Howard would go out and talk to them, the salesman would end up leaving having bought something from Howard. That, that's how convincing a man he was. So for six hours, he was able to tell lies. Uh, he was able to convince the police, uh, even if the police still had suspicions over him, which I have no way of knowing, they certainly didn't have evidence to act on it. Um, and and he, was, he had plausible deniability and a plausible story. And he said, hey, well, I got the gold out of the cart. And then I went to the post office on air, at the airport to get the mail bags that were going to Montreal. Uh, I came back to the cart. I put the mail on, on the top of the carts in the, in the cart. And then I went out to the tarmac to deliver all the stuff. When I got to the airplane, I went into the terminal to get paperwork. When I came out of the terminal, I found the gold had already been loaded on the plane, so I took my empty cart and, you know, and watched the plane take off. And that's his story. So that allowed police to, to create this uh, narrative that what, the likely ha- what likely happened was that criminals uh, may have been aware there was some gold uh, coming or, or passing through, and and were watching the gold, waiting for an opportunity to pounce on it. And when it was left unattended for five, six minutes while the, the mailbags were collected, they quickly lightning blitzed it, grabbed what gold they could and took off. And then Howard, on, you know, not being any of the wiser, not hearing or seeing anything, just delivered the cargo uh, to the plane. And that allowed the, him the plausible deniability uh, to sort of not be a red light uh, target. Now, I mean, you mentioned earlier that this heist has all the trappings of of a Hollywood movie. You know, these criminals make off with what is hundreds of thousands at the time, but in today's dollars, millions of dollars worth of gold, and they get to live fat and happy and and go on with their lives after making a big score like this. But as you mentioned earlier, when you were talking to Howard's daughter, Heather, the reluctance to talk about this at first kind of made you think potentially that a that you were on the right track but b that there may not have been a happy ending to the story at least for the family um making off with this gold so what happened to the halpennies after this did i i assume that they didn't get out with a score that would make them rich and let them live happily ever after Young Howard, skilled as he is and strong as he is or was, uh, made, made a crucial mistake. And I, I believe that mistake was quipping to the press as he left. He liked to talk. He was a talker. Microphones are shoved in his face. Reporters are there with their notepads. Uh, and they asked him about the, uh, you know, his, his interrogation with police. And he said, you know, it wasn't, any, it wasn't no picnic. Um, I didn't leave the gold for more than no more than four or five minutes or five or six minutes. So, in the vacuum of news on a highly um, hungry news story, the reporters quoted him, and his name appeared in the front pages of newspapers across Canada. And so, what I suspect happened is the underworld 
learned that the Halpenies were likely involved in the gold heist the same way I did 70 years later. They saw his name in the newspaper. They're reading the, their local papers, and all of a sudden there's a reference to Howard Halpenny being the last one to handle the gold. And while as his name didn't mean many to most, it would have meant something to the gangsters, and if not Howard directly, then Gordon would. He had these bigger interests that he was selling the stock for. Howard had these gangsters that he was running with on the street. So the street knew that the Halpenies had gold. And uh, these mob figures wanted to know why they didn't get a piece of it. Because that's what organized crime means, you know. They puts the organized in organized crime. You, 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 it, 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 is, it is a syndicate. And when, when career criminals uh, pull a heist in their territory, there's expected to be um, a contribution, and they wanted that contribution. So apparently, um, the family lord and the, what the family heard as they were um, skulking in their bedrooms at night, listening to their parents talking, and the, you know maybe Howard and Gordon talking, was that someone, some dangerous crime figures, were demanding he turn over the gold, and it was in the words of the daughter. Uh, as I quote in my story, she said they had bitten off a bigger piece of sausage than they could choke back. So <laughs> that's a really colorful way of saying they bit off more than they could chew. And, uh, and that's exactly apparently what happened, uh, that the mobsters were swooping in. And in fact, to the point where there was a threat to kidnap his children. He had uh, two, uh, a toddler, a baby, and a pregnant wife at the time. And Gordon and, and Howard, that's Howard, and Gordon's uh, parents had a, another sibling who was also, uh, you know, a, with, with children, I believe. So it was, it was a substantial, almost existential threat against the family, and it left them really no option. And um, the, the further nuance that uh, gets introduced into this from talking to people is that I think Gordon and or Howard went to crime figures that they knew for protection to solve the problem. That, that, that the threat was coming from perhaps outside, maybe from Montreal, maybe from Buffalo, um, and that the other mob, if it wasn't Montreal making it, then it was Buffalo and it was, or vice versa, uh, reached out to their friends in the underworld to help smooth things over. And, uh, and between the two gangsters, uh, the two mob groups, they, uh, they basically cleaned the family out. I believe they got a, a small amount for the troubles and their, uh, for planning it uh, and for doing the heist. But the gold, by and large, uh, disappeared into the hands of bigger fish organized crime, whether it was in Buffalo or Montreal. And, uh, and, that's, and, and that's likely what happened. And the family averted the disaster of these threats uh, to, of kidnap and, 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 and tragic outcomes. And, um, and then Gordon and then Heather, uh, sorry, not Heather, then Howard Halpenny, the, the gangster, then went about his life and leading a very colorful life, even without the gold heist um, uh, throughout uh, his his days. Looking at this story and the totality of this story and, and kind of unraveling this, this seven-year-old mystery, I'm curious, you know, two things as we wrap up here. A, what did, did Heather have to say about what the family makes about their connection to this life and to this heist? It's got to be something to have someone show up 70 years after your father allegedly committed uh, an infamous gold heist and say, hey, was it your dad or <laughs> was it was it someone in your family? What what does the family make up about it? And then 
more personally, as someone who covers organized crime and the criminal underworld routinely, what did you make about all of this and how it unraveled for you? Let me deal with with my end of it first. And that was that it really played out like a perfect underworld parable. Um, I know the way gangland works. And and I know that, that, you know, this concept of honor among thieves is uh, not always uh, uh, a sound belief. Um, that uh, bosses like to eat and they like to, to eat well. So the end of it um, didn't surprise me. Uh, you know, I was a little disappointed from a, from a story arc of uh, you like to see the, uh, perhaps the little guy who's, um, you know, steals from the impenetrable Swiss banks, uh, maybe uh, feed, a, you know, give his family a good life, but it, it was not to be. From the family's end, it just, there's a really mixture there, and, and especially since the stories were on, I've, I've really become aware of difference, opi- different opinions of, of people in the families about, uh, about this, this past and this uh, um, secret history to their family. Some were very angry with me um, for, for telling this uh, story and putting a, you know, a, a quote-unquote black mark um, on the family name. Others, obviously, um, you know, especially, you know, those confirmed me and talked to me and went on the record. You know, their motivation was um, that they wanted it to be as accurate as possible because, you know, I I didn't just phone and say, hey, this doesn't happen to be a relative of yours. By then I knew. I knew exactly who I was calling. I knew exactly why I was calling. And I I, I prefaced it all by saying, here's why I'm calling, because I know that your father uh, did this and your your grandfather Gordon did this, and this is this is this this is my evidence, and so there was a story coming out one way or the other, and I think they wanted to make sure that it was is accurate and um, um, you know as forthcoming as possible, and and, and sort of told perhaps uh, the two sides of their their father, and um, and I think the story does that. Yeah, well, it certainly is. It's a fascinating story, and and. You know, definitely, as you as you say, colorful characters involved. People who want to read it, they can check it out at nationalpost.com. Adrian, thanks for your time. Thank you very much for your interest. 10.3 is produced by Tyler Dawson. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Adrian Humphreys. More from him and specifically this feature at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.